episode number 14, we are live. How's your day? My day is going well. How's your day going? It's perfect in the morning. First time recording in the morning, actually. Looking forward to this. You had some very good news. We're not going to share it, but it's very good news. So hopefully exactly. this will be a very good podcast. Let's do this. Let's get straight into it. Straight into it. Okay. Well, let's do it. We had this little thing called the Australian Open final on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And it was extremely exciting. I didn't watch the women's, but I did watch the men's. But I will give a little overview of the women's first and then get into the men's. So Arena mm-hmm. Sabalenka picked up her second Australian Open title on Saturday. She previously won it last year. This is also her second major. And it was a pretty dominant performance against Zheng Quinwen with a score of 6-3-6-2. Yeah, I mean, I didn't watch the game, so I don't know how she played. But And of course, women's tennis, it's a maximum of three sets, which is why she's won it in two. But Mm -hmm. if you're winning 6-3-6-2, it just means that Zheng really didn't impose herself against Sabalenka. And considering that Sabalenka won last year, you know, she has the experience on that court. And it's not something that really surprises me. She's a really good player. Um, She's won two majors already. I can see her winning more going forward. And it could be a case, you know, like Novak Djokovic, who dominated the Australian Open for over a decade, where she might just rack up these titles going forward. She might not have, you know, wins in Wimbledon or wins at Roland Garros or US Open. She might, but she might not get a lot of them. Yeah. But, you know, Australian Open seems to be for tennis players in both men's and women's where for whatever reason, it can be dominated by a specific player. So, mm. yeah, props to her. Very good performance. Does she have any, just in general, not just Australian Open, does she have any proper competition? I know there's one Polish player. I forgot her name. Iga Swintek. That's the yeah. one. That's the one. I know she's really good. I think she's actually ranked number one right now. Uh, yeah. Is she not in the tournament? She was. I believe she got knocked out between the last 16 and the quarterfinals. So oh, interesting. that was a surprise. But yeah. no, I think Sabalenka does have competition. And you're going to see that in the other majors throughout the years. Um, but mm-hmm. this just seems to be her tournament. And like I said, you know, 6-3, 6-2 it appears like it was a dominant performance. So props to her. Fair play. And in the men's side, this was the exciting one for me. Yannick Sinner versus Daniel Medvedev. He was two sets down. Okay. I woke up on a Sunday morning, put it straight Mm -hmm. on. Medvedev was just dominating the court. He was playing really aggressive tennis. And you can see that in the scoreline, 6-3, 6-3, the first two sets. Yeah. But during this tournament, actually, Medvedev broke a record for the longest that a player has spent on a Grand Slam court over a major. He had over 24 hours of game time over two weeks. So just imagine the intensity of that. And Mm. I think that is why we saw a big shift here. It's not all of that, but I think that's a big reason. And Sinner, with an incredible comeback, completely turned it around. So he lost the first two sets, 6-3, 6-3. And then he won the next two, 6-4, 6-4. And then he won the fifth set, 6-3. So it was a really impressive comeback from Yannick Sinner. He's only 22, by the way. And -hmm. he's the second Italian winner of a major in the Open era. Only two men's Italian players have ever won a major. And the last one was in the French Open in 1976. So it's actually a very big moment for Italian tennis, Italian sport. And I'm really happy you know, to see Sinner win because he plays beautiful tennis. He's a really good player. And people have said that it's coming. And it it's the first time really in quite a while that someone like, you know, Djokovic or Nadal hasn't dominated this tournament. I mean, yeah. Sinner knocked out Djokovic on the way to the final with a really impressive 3-1 victory. So, yeah. And that's crazy Excellent. to think when Djokovic was playing on these courts, winning tournaments, this guy probably was barely talking he's 22 well, isn't he exactly and crazy. Djokovic going into his semi-final against Sinner hadn't lost in a semi-final at the Australian Open for a decade mm-hmm. so 
that win streak is and that dominance is incredible and that was what i was talking about you know a single player dominating this specific major mm-hmm. but it what it proves is it sort of counters what i said about djokovic a few episodes ago where i was like this guy can go on and on and on it does prove that he is beatable um yeah. and the few times that sinner and djokovic have played it hasn't been one-sided it's not like djokovic has won all of them and then sinner just beat him here in this semi-final Sinner's won quite a few of them in the last few times they played. So this is this guy is not, you know, undefeatable. Mm-hmm. He is defeatable. Um maybe Sinner just, just has his number. He just knows. Well, maybe. Maybe, yeah. yeah. And, you know, obviously you've got Alcaraz as well, incredible player, and we were talking about how he could go on to win perhaps double digits, but perhaps I mean it just shows that maybe it's not going to be so dominant anymore. Maybe we are going to have these new players coming through and we're going to have different major winners. And I think actually as a fan, that's really exciting. So the Australian Open final, the men's one was brilliant. The women's one looks like a one-sided affair, but congratulations to Sabalenka. And yeah, I mean, now we've got to look forward to the French Open. I believe that's in March. So I will keep you updated on that whenever that happens. Yes, yeah, so with this match, to me, it sounds like, obviously I've not seen it, but it sounds like the comeback of the tournaments. I don't know if they give any trophies for that or not. <laughs> uh, but if they don't, if they do, this does sound like it. 6-3 down, 6-3 down. But as you said, I'm sure Medvedev had some tools on his body over playing 24 hours is intense. I mean, once again, comparing it to us playing, now we don't play at the highest level obviously i'd say we play at a very average or maybe even below average level uh we play for like two three hours and we're knackered it's yeah. crazy to think playing 24 hours over a week two weeks did you say yeah over two weeks it, it will surely have have an impact on your on your performance and you could actually tell like obviously i didn't watch it but just looking at the scoreline it just to me it's your body giving out to a certain extent and of course, th- credits given to Sinner as well. I think it was that because those first two sets, you know, 6-3, six, 6-3, three, mm-hmm. six, three, and watching it, Medvedev was playing really aggressive and that's a lot of running. And I just think he couldn't sustain it. But I feel bad for him because he lost the Australian Open final two years ago from the exact same position. He was two sets up against Nadal. Yeah. And then Nadal came back and won the last three and won titles. So... Yeah, I mean, you know, props props for him to getting into this position. He's someone who he's got to quite a few major finals. I think he's got to five or six, maybe seven, but he's only ever won one. So he has that mental determination to get into these positions. And he always starts off on the strong foot, but he just can't sustain it. Um, Then again, you know to play over 24 hours i mean and we you were just talking about how physically draining you know three hours can be so yeah incredible performance by both of them i'm sure medvedev will learn from that yeah i mean think about it what what these guys do is or girls what they do is and that's what we see with sports we don't uh we don't see the whole thing we only see okay they're on they're on display doing it for like two hours that's it well done fair play to them but actually before that they're doing plenty like in the training room they run like that still has an impact on your body as well and unfortunately the thing with that is you won't see it up until you're out there doing the main thing because that's when you feel the impact of it on your body you won't actually feel it in the practice room exactly and like we've got to bear in mind 24 hours on court playing professional tennis does not include the time he was also training on court so during that I mean? two week. Yeah. So God knows how many hours he spent, probably 48 to 72 on court, physically moving about. I mean, that's insane over a two week period. It's so intense. And, you know, he he is an incredible player, Medvedev, and he will come back strong. Um, and of course, I think I was reading an article from, I believe it's the BBC, and they, they were talking about how Medvedev was never meant to be this player who was getting into these positions. He was never meant to be a player who had the physical capacity to get into tournament finals, just the way that he played tennis. But it was through mental determination that he completely shifted his career Mm. trajectory. 
and he knew that he had to up it. He, he knew that he had to be more determined in the way that he plays, in the way that he approaches games in order to get to the final. So clearly someone with a lot of mental grip. Um, it's just unfortunate that he's playing against someone as talented and someone who is having their moment like Sinner is. Because Medvedev has had his moment. He's won his major. He is he is a top player and he's going to keep getting to finals. So, But it's nice Sounds to Russian. see... He's Russian. He is, although... Yeah. Actually, same with Sabalenka, I believe, or she's from, she might not be Russian. She might be Bulgarian. No, no, I think, I believe it's Bulgarian. Um, but they're banned, I think, as in from like international sports. So when you watch, oh. when you watch them playing and it has like the flags next to their name, it doesn't have the Bulgarian or the Russian flag next to Sabalenka or Medvedev's. Yeah, so that is interesting. I don't know how long that ban goes on for as well. Wait, but... is it to do with them personally being banned or tennis being banned for them? To no, play? it's it's not personally. It's like the federation of the sport because if you, I'm not sure if you were aware, but Russia got banned, you know, from the Olympics yeah, a few yeah, years yeah. ago. And I think that was a sports wide thing. And it was certain countries who had, you know, these like doping regimes. Oh, and so. Okay because of that i don't think they're allowed to represent their countries in whatever professional sport that they play so i think that's why why they don't have the flag that makes sense i'd like to actually bring something up because we were talking about novak djokovic go for it um you know the person the individual who accused the man or didn't accuse him who said you're not allowed to play because you didn't get the vaccine uh-huh he died off of heart attack because of the vaccine. Really? Yeah. Isn't we call that we call that ironic. That is ironic. I mean, it's understandable, rip, but it's also ironic. But just saying. And also, I have another question regarding tennis. Go for it. What do you think about? Because this is something I also see in boxing, not in MMA, but in boxing. I also see it where the woman's version of the sport whatever it is it's meant to be slightly less intense whether it's less rounds less time uh less sets so what do you think about that and from someone who follows tennis closely what do you think that athletes think about that so do they want to have the same or are they happy with it and what do you think about it um physically i think it's it's safe to say that it's less intense than the men's one but i think something about tennis I've always believed this watching it. Well, two things. Well, yeah, one thing mainly is that the women's is as entertaining as the men's. And so that is why, you know, for the Australian Open final, which is something that I like and I think is actually is probably true and deserving. Absolutely. Is that the prize fund, for example, is the same for the men's and the women's. And that is because the entertainment package that you are watching in terms of quality is pretty much the same. Now, of course, this final is not the best example of that because it looks like Sabalenka dominated. But then again, you know, Zheng is not as top a player as Sabalenka, for example. Let's say if it was Iga Swintek against Sabalenka, it probably would have been a much more intense match. But of course, she didn't get to the final. Um, so in terms of like physical intensity, I think the men's one is yeah, more intense. And that is why they play for five sets. But the women's one, you know, being three sets, I think that mental intensity is exactly the same. Um, and in terms of entertainment value, they're just as good. Like I would happily watch women's tennis just as much as I would watch men's tennis. Yeah, and that's actually the point I was trying to get to. Like, don't you think it's better for the, for them to have five sets as well rather than three? I guess they would have to, and I'm, I'm sure they have already done this, but I guess they'd have to trial it. But mm. I'm really not sure because I don't actually, I don't actually know the reason behind why it's three sets. I assume it's something to do with physical intensity. Yeah. Um, yeah, because let, let me give you an example. You can just look at serve speeds, right? Mm. Men's, men's players can go up to 140 miles per hour and women at the top end usually go to about 110. So there's a physical difference, right? Yeah. Um, but I'm actually not sure what the reason is why women's goes up to three and men's goes to five, but I do think it's probably physical intensity. 
Well, yeah, I mean, through boxing, I know it because it's the same in boxing as well. When you have like a 12 round championship fight, firstly, I believe for women, it's 10 rounds, the championship fight. So it's not 12 rounds. Yeah. Plus the rounds are two minutes rather than three minutes. So what I do in amateur boxing, which is two minutes rounds, that's what you have for professional uh, for professional fighting when it comes to women's boxing. Um, And the reason behind it is or what they say, the reason behind it is it's a very physical and intense sport and it's not made for women to endure that during that whole time. Now, I say this, however, there are a lot of champions, there are a lot of female fighters who complain about that and they're like, well, it's not fair to say we can't take it and not let us do it. I think we should have that extra two rounds to work our way through a win or whatever. Um, and we should have the same amount of time or whatever. And UFC, which is somewhat of a new, or MMA, which is somewhat of a new sport, especially UFC was the first organization that actually put the equal round, put the same same number of rounds and the same number of minutes within a round for both men and women. And it proves to be no difference. Like, yes, they're physically like, yes, you're going to see less knockouts with women's MMA just because that strength factor is probably slightly less than when you put two men in there. Even if it's the same weight, if you put two men weighing in at 145 pounds and two women weighing in at 145 pounds, you'll probably have like a 60% knockout rate in the men's division, but like a 10% knockout rate in the women's division. Um, And that's just because physically they may not be able to generate that explosive power to put someone to sleep however that doesn't necessarily mean they can't endure the full five minutes of round or the three rounds of five minute action well that was what i was going to ask you so like you just said there's no difference right they haven't noticed any difference between them upping the round limit and the time limit Mm -hmm. as far as i'm as far as i'm aware with tennis though there hasn't been any or there currently is no uproar from the female players saying we want to play five sets as well, as far as I'm aware. Um, I guess what you would probably see at the start would be if there's no doubt they can play five sets, of course they can, but you would probably see a drop off in terms of intensity um, simply because they're professionally that they just, they don't play five sets. They play three. Um, But you know, you would probably see over time that would even out. Right. So exactly. But as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been any big call to change it to five sets. Um, yeah. But it's something it's something worth looking into more. Yeah, because I personally find it unfair to say, well, I mean, it may be something which all athletes agree with. However, I just find it somewhat unfair to say, oh, to assume they can't do it. Therefore, let's not let them do it. Yeah, no, and it makes sense. And like in regards to tennis, of course, women can play five sets. Yeah, but... exactly. I guess their their rationale behind the rule right now is that you know it's it's so physically intense that perhaps it perhaps it damages the entertainment product for viewers because mm-hmm. you might have that drop off in intensity um but you know like we might like we said you know if you if you do change the rule and they get used to playing five sets professionally that will even out and there won't be as much a drop off if any they'll just get used to it so yeah, it's something. It's something worth looking into more. Yeah, I'd like to see. I'd like to see if if they can change it and if if it'll be as entertaining and if they could agree with the rules and you know continue doing what they do. You know what? We're gonna follow up on that next week. There you go. Exactly. Isn't that when Emma Raducanu is playing? Oh, she's playing on the eleventh. No, I'm not sure. Is she? Yeah, I think she's playing on the eleventh. That's her next match. Oh, okay. Well, know. we'll have a look at that as well. So That's how we do it. Let's move on. You visited Waltham Abbey on the weekend. Do you want to I tell did. us a little bit about that? Of course. So Waltham Abbey, north of London. I think it's actually just outside London. Yeah, it's in Essex somewhat. Um, because it does say welcome to Essex. It's my second time going there. First time I went August, I believe, or July last year. Um the la- last time I went, we didn't go to the main bit. What what I did was like we just parked in like a park bit, obviously, and we walked in the park. It was like a massive field, and you could see the river. It's just nice views, pretty much like peaceful, not a lot of people. That's why I did last time. Is it a national heritage site? Yes, I believe it is. Uh, and 
Yeah. I mean, it's called Abbey. Is it like a cathedral? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you then go further down, when you go to the main like town bit, firstly, it's very small, like it's tiny. Uh, second, it's, it's got this main church, which it's known for, the Waltham Abbey Church, which yeah. is beautiful, by the way. Uh, and I have some photos from it. And that's where the resting place of King Harold II is, which is the last king of, I believe, the Anglo-Saxons. And he's actually buried in there. Yeah, and you could see his body. Or you can't see his body, but you could see his graveyard. The church itself is beautiful. This was, I believe, the last time I went to a church was, I can't even remember, like five, six, seven years ago. Uh, But I went in the church. It was so peaceful. And I don't know, I just felt, I just felt something in the church. I'm not going to lie. Um, there wasn't a lot of people there. We just sat there for a bit, walked around the church, and then we went out. We walked in the garden. It's got this beautiful garden area, and it's got this beautiful, like, you know, everything is, like, old. Everything's from, like, centuries ago, and it has, like, labels saying, oh, yeah, this is pla- this is the place where the monks used to do this and it had this other bit which is kind of like deep in in the ground and they were like oh yeah this is the forging bit where they used to forge metal and stuff like that and it's just beautiful like honestly it's so beautiful and it's so peaceful you said when you were in the church you had a feeling was it was it serenity was it calmness yeah so like see the thing with church though they they are visually appealing like just statically look amazing with most of them at least obviously you can't you can't tell with all like i've i went to three or two churches that were really nice and one of them was in france the uh, is it the notre dame yeah that one yeah and one of them was in germany in Cologne. that church was beautiful same with the one in france by the way and obviously with them one it's somewhat more of a museum than a church because a lot of people just go there to look around. Like, it's so busy and people aren't necessarily there to be like, oh, okay, let's sit down and pray. They're just there to just walk around, see all these statues, see all these, like, beautiful engineering and stuff like that. But this time, I don't know, I just had this, there was this smell in the air, which I I think you could relate. Like, if you've ever stepped in a church, you know what smell I'm talking about. It just smells holy. And it was just, honestly, like it was just so peaceful. Like, it was so calm. And I was just sitting there, and you could hear this. But you could hear the bells, the org, I believe. Uh, and you could hear, like, bells in the background. Oh, my God, it was peaceful. I'm just looking right now at, you know, the grounds, which look beautiful. And there's, like, a canal as well. Did you go over the gatehouse and the bridge? Because that looks yes. beautiful as well. Yes. And how far does the, like, canal go? Is that... Is that pretty oh, long? Far, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, very long. I believe the last time we went, it was, as I said, the last time we went, we didn't go to the main town bit, but it was still like 10, 15 minutes away and you could still like see it and everything. Because I think I remember when you last went, or maybe I'm thinking of another heritage site that, that you went to, but I remember you saying, oh, I've gone out here and here's a photo and you should definitely go again in the future. But yeah. I love these sort of places, you know, these heritage sites, these churches, just, you know, like you said earlier, the architecture is beautiful, but it's just like the vibe when you're there. It's a nice, peaceful day out, especially if you do it on, you know, like a, on a weekend, like a Sunday or a Saturday. Yeah. Just to get, get a feel for the village. It's somewhere different from, you know, like the busy life of London. And that's what I was going to ask, actually, how was the the surrounding village around it? Was it, was it quite nice? Did it have loads of little shops, stuff like that? So, yeah, so firstly, the drive was beautiful. And this is, once again, coming from someone who, as we discussed in the last episode, doesn't really enjoy driving much. (laughs) But just the drive, like, the site was beautiful because you had this narrow road and you had, like, the green area all around you, these small, tiny village-looking houses around. It was just beautiful. And at the end of it, where we actually parked, yes, when you walk into town a little bit, you could just... You could just tell it was different. It wasn't like a city-ish looking place. It was just so, how could I describe it? It was so light. Like everything about it was light. It had all these small shops. It had all these, everything was just tiny. Like you could, from one side, you could see the other end. And I just it loved felt, it. Did it feel like a community? Yeah, yeah, literally, exactly. I was going to say that. Like it literally felt like 
this person knows that person oh, they have talks on a daily basis they just walk around they all yeah. know each other they handle the town like it just felt like that like small village england like this is what i think people think of if they don't think of london this is what they think england's like like a small village where everyone knows each other did you end up going anywhere you know for lunch like a like a nice pub or a nice cafe last time we went to a cafe and that cafe was beautiful this time uh my partner really wanted to go to pets at home to look at hamsters <laughs> i know <laughs> So we wanted to leave afterwards. So we just went to Costa. We had coffee. We had a ham sandwich, and then we just went to pets at home and looked at hamsters and gerbils. Did you end up? Did you end up getting any? What hamsters? Yeah. No, I managed to change her mind up until oh. she got home. Did she want to buy one? Yeah, she. Uh, okay, so she bought this castle, and that's yeah. that's unfair because it's unfair let's call it a palace she built this palace it's so massive yeah like four stories and that's her way of getting a hamster <laughs> and i'm like they don't really need that like they just need like a small cage somewhere in the corner and she's like no like the hamster is <laughs> gonna be happy and i'm like and she actually told me did you know this about hamsters they have a very fragile heart so oh when they get excited, they just die of heart attacks. Oh, no. It's just amazing. That's bleak. Yeah, but it's like when they get really excited because she had a hamster before. Yeah. And he died of a heart attack because he got so excited over a carrot. Oh. Yeah. And it's just, it was funny because this this was my convin- this was my point to convince her not to get one, right? I said, look, if they get scared, they get a heart attack. If they get excited, they get a heart attack. Do you really think it's going to survive my driving? She was like, that's very true. But I don't think it would die from a heart attack with your driving. (laughs) I think it would get flung from one side of the cage to the other and it would die that way. Uh, A concussion, yeah. Speaking of pets, have you got your, you've got a rabbit yet? Have you done that yet? No, 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 not yet. Not yet. I'm I'm going to get a snake. I'm getting a snake. Oh no. So you switched. So originally you were planning on getting a snake for years. Yeah. Then that sort of quiet down and then you wanted a rabbit and now you're back to snake. Yeah, well see the thing with the snake is I'm gonna have to convince my parents. Like that's the tricky part. Well, I mean naturally, yeah, but why why are they opposed to it? Well, see hear me out. The first time I went to my mom I was like, I wanna I want a snake and she was like, Well, you keep it in your room. I was like, Yeah, of course, I'll I'll be keeping it in my room. And then I was like you know what, I need you to empty the fridge a little bit or the freezer a little bit. She was like, well, I was like, yeah, you know, I have to put frozen rats in there. And she was like, yeah, you're not getting a snake. Like, that's um, it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that's it. Uh, you, you put me off there. So, I mean, I was never going to get a snake, but now that I've heard that, yeah, frozen rats. Oh, yeah. No. That's, get a, that's the only thing. Get a vegan snake. <laughs> Can't you feed them like cockroaches and stuff? No, it's too small. You you actually are only meant to feed them rodents, like rats. Oh. If they're big, if there's like a king cobra, you're meant to give them like either small python snakes or like bunnies, massive rabbits. What pigs. about a hamster? You could feed them hamsters, yeah. Oh, poor Gerbils, hamster. hamsters. See, the hamster's not going to die of a heart attack. It's going to get eaten <laughs> by a snake. That was my other convincing point, actually. There you go. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree with your mum. No snake. But... <laughs> to be fair, though, you could give like you could not get frozen rats, but then again, in return, you have to get live rats, which is slightly worse, in my opinion. What snake would you get? If I were to get a snake, it would be ball python. Why that one? Well, that one is a beginner-friendly snake. Well, not really. You've got like corn snakes, which are like a smaller ones, and they're meant to be like beginner-friendly snakes. But ball pythons are easy to maintain. Like they're very, yeah. very easy to maintain. They don't require to leave, uh, to to be in a certain cage, or they don't require to be in a certain place where it has a humidity, specific humidity, or a specific temperature. Yes, yeah. they do, but it's like a more, it's easier to get rather than like I don't know, like a boa, for example. Um, and obviously they're very, as I said, beginner friendly. So in terms of they could be quite aggressive, but they aren't necessarily. It's quite easy to handle them. Feeding them isn't really an issue because they could go without eating for like 
a year oh. for six months. But you're meant to feed them once a week, but they could go on that period on their own where they just don't want to eat for like six months. Oh, right. uh, and it's just crazy. I don't know how they survive. But yeah. How big do these snakes grow? Like four foot. Jesus. Yeah, they get massive. But how are you going to fit that in your bedroom? Well, you're meant to get like this massive container, but the thing is, obviously, they're never fully stretched out. Like, they're always, that's why it's called ball python. They're always in like a ball looking thing. Oh, okay. They will circle around themselves. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, like, that's pretty much it. Well, I mean, in one sense, it sounds cost effective if you're saying they can go six months without eating. But, yeah. On the other hand, I'm just wondering how much they cost. Oh, you could literally get them from one pound. Really? Yeah. From where? Uh, from the snake um, breeders and stuff. I don't know. Dodgy Facebook marketplace. But, yeah, basically. However, they could obviously get very expensive depending on the breed and depending on how expensive it is. But the thing with it is... Um, the reason why it's very cheap, by the way, is because some of them they get, which is quite sad actually, but some of them get sold in mass quantities to designer brands. And the reason they do that is so they could use the leather on them. Oh, that's uh, horrible. Yeah, so they produce like snakes in mass quantity and then they obviously sell them to all these designer brands. So imagine if you sell like a hundred thousand snakes for like five pound a snake. Yeah, so they breed I mean. them specifically for that. Yeah, so they don't really care about, oh, is this like a specific type of breed? Is it like a specific, is it unique? Is it a good mixture? No, they just care about, okay, just getting the numbers up. Uh, but yeah, like that's why some of them can be very cheap, very, very cheap, because they're just so random. Um, well, that that is a reality of, you know, the fashion world, for example. Um, yeah. What is it? Using snake leather, using cow yeah. leather, you know. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's what they do. And obviously, with the snakes, it's the easiest one to get out of all of them because, firstly, with snakes, they're quite small; like they yeah. don't require a lot of space. Whereas with cows, if you have like a million cows, you need a big space. That's uh, true. But with snakes, you could just have them because it's not like they give one, each one of them a container. They'll just put like a like a hundred in like a bag. Yeah, they'll just send them over. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it with ball pythons. That's that's how they do it. In terms of like you were saying they can get quite aggressive, does that mean biting or does that mean like strangling? What does it mean? Yeah, so with snakes, they don't really strangle. Like especially with ball pythons, they don't strangle what's bigger than them. They won't attempt it. Okay. Like they'll size you up. If, if, they, if you're bigger than them, they will not attack you with the intentions to kill you. Yeah, they will only attack you with the intentions to defend themselves, and that's something you could just tell from their body language. As someone who, if you if you have experience handling a lot of snakes, you just know from their body language whether they want to be handled at that time or whether they're ready to strike. Um, and by aggressive, they'll just attempt to bite you. They miss like three out of five times probably, but if they do bite you, then yeah, it's not even that bad. Well, they wouldn't be venomous, right? No, no, they're not venomous, no. All right, well, shall we move on from snakes to something that we probably should have talked about straight after tennis? And that <laughs> is winning and losing. How do we develop from both? So we were sort of, we were texting about this before. And yeah. I, my argument was, let's say you have a job interview. You have an assessment center for a job, sorry. And you don't get it and you get feedback. Well, you could say that is losing. And my argument is through getting that feedback, through having that experience, it allows you to, to develop going forward and be better. And that is beneficial to you. Now, your argument, however, was sort of different. Your argument, and I'm not going to really speak for you, but this is what I got from what you were saying, Sorry. is that you would learn more from winning and you would develop more from winning consistently rather mm -hmm. than losing or, you know, missing out on something, for example. And just to be clear, actually, with like a job interview, I don't see that as losing because it's not a competitive sport. So let's perhaps let's just apply this to competitive sport, winning and losing in terms of sport. How yeah. do you develop from both? 
So, yeah, I mean, there's this understanding of a lot of people saying, when you lose, you learn, it's okay, like, you come back stronger. I agree, but I also disagree. I believe when when something has happened, listen, in form of a competition, you lost, can you change the outcome now? No. Like, yes, you cannot change the outcome, so there's no reason for you to be like, oh, it's a shame, it's that, it's this. Yes, you can learn from it. However, a lot of people use that as an excuse to get away from the reality. Uh, the reason I say this is a lot of people I know, they're like, oh, we lost. It's okay. Like, we'll do this. We'll do that. We'll come back. It's not okay. You just lost everything you worked for. You should be sad. Like, it's okay to be sad. This is what I'm trying. This is my argument. My argument is when they say we lost, it's okay. We'll come back or we'll regroup. Yes, you will come back anyway, but it's not okay. You just lost what you dedicated X amount of times, X amount of hours to. So you should be sad about it. However, being sad about it doesn't mean, oh, let me go sit in the corner, think about my life, start crying. No, that's not what it means to be sad. What it means to be sad in that regard is now you have more hunger. Now you're like, okay, well, now I'm going to get back, get back to that and I'm going to get it back. That's what it means to be sad from it. So I believe the understanding of saying, yes, you'll learn from your loss. Yes, you would. However, you could actually learn more from winning than you could from losing. Yes, if I were to do a fight, if I were to lose, can't relate, by the way, but <laughs> if I were to lose a fight, I'd be like, okay, well, my hand was down. I just, I got caught. I went to sleep. I walked back up. So next time I know to have my hand up. However, I'd much rather have my hand down, not get caught, win the fight, go home, watch the tape and be like, oh, that place my hand was down, I could have gotten caught rather than my hand being down, me getting clipped, going to sleep, waking back up, being like, oh, it's okay. Next time I won't do it. Do you know what I mean? Of course you would rather that. I feel like just listen to your argument there. Yes, of course you would rather win. And actually I said this to you, you know, I think you develop from both and I'm not sure which one is more important than the other. I feel like your argument is more so about complacency and Mm. so your argument is more about those people who lose and sort of shut up on themselves but let me give you an example with a specific sport let's just take tennis for example okay you definitely develop from losing right Mm. it's undeniable that you become a better player through losing it's part of the process you take all the great tennis players when they started their careers on tour Yes, they got deep in some tournaments, but other ones, they got knocked out in round one. You learn from that experience, you get that resilience. And here's why I think it then becomes a little bit complicated, because if you take a combat sport, well, you don't really want to lose, right? I'm not Mm -hmm. sure how much you develop. So I guess in a way it, it depends on the sport, doesn't it? Because if in something like tennis and something like even football, you can actually learn a lot from losing. Whereas in like combat sport, you could definitely learn from losing, but it can also make you weaker. We've spoken about this before in terms of, you know, specific fighters where they were great, then they lost and they're completely different. And, you know, now they lose every now and then. It's just not the same. Um, But yeah, that was just my take. I thought you were more talking about complacency Mm, rather than complacency as a result of losing which yet some people can but i'm more so let's just imagine that everyone who loses wants to develop that was more my argument so it's more idyllic let's just imagine that that everyone who loses in a competitive sport has the mindset where they're not going to cry in a corner but they do want to improve themselves yeah well as we as we discussed in a combat sport losing is just more significant than it is in probably any other type of sport firstly because of the damage that you could be on the receiving end of if you lose secondly just yeah. the mindset however okay let's take sports let's subtract sports from this conversation let's okay. actually go back to a job interview right yep let's say you're having an interview for a job you really wanted your whole life this is your dream job this is everything you worked for in your life. Um, you go to the interview, you fail the interview. 
Is that a learning lesson? Absolutely. Now, hear me out. I don't think it is. Yes, it is. However, this is why I say you could learn more from winning than you would losing. Obviously, in this term, that's not necessarily winning or losing. It's like getting the job or not getting the job, which is pretty much the same thing. Yeah. But you worked your whole life for this job interview. You're so prepared in your mind. You're made for this job. You go, you do the interview. A week later, you get the results of like, we regret to inform you, you're not getting the job. And yes, you could be like, oh, fuck. I'm upset. I'm sad. I'm going to regroup. I'm going to do best in my next interview. This, I See, this is where the problem comes in. That's not how it works. If this is the job you really wanted your whole life, this is everything you worked for and you failed. Yes, you could learn from it, but Firstly, you should be sad because, but use it in a good way. Don't sit, as I said, don't sit in a corner and cry. Be like, okay, well, that just makes me more hungry. However, here, this is what I say. When you get, when you do a job interview, I assume they'd be like, okay, well, you failed because of lack of intelligence in terms of IT, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Would you not rather them telling you, oh, well, Mr. William Code, you got the job, but you need to develop your IoT. Or would you rather be like, Mr. William Coke, you failed the interview, you need to develop your IT. Do you know what I mean? Yes, both ways you realize you need to develop your IT, but you'd rather get the, you'd rather win. You'd rather be like, okay, well, I did everything. This is everything I wanted. I got it. Now I know I need to improve this and this and this, rather than be like, okay, I didn't get it. Now I have to improve 10 other things which I didn't need to. This is the difference, right? The difference between losing and winning is when you win, you'd know straight away what you need to improve. But whereas with you, when you lose, there are a lot of areas which you think you don't need to improve, but they'll get proven to you that you need to improve. Well, let's just, let's just take your example, right? The job Mm -hmm. one. And I completely understand what you're saying. Let's take the example though. You've prepared for this job your whole life. This is like your destiny. This is what you think you want. And you go in there and you don't get the job. Well, Mm -hmm. It's not really losing. What it means is, actually, you're, you're just not ready for it yet. And you go back and you take that feedback, not just the feedback, though, the experience of the day, the questions that they ask, and you self-reflect and go, okay, yeah, I do need to improve in this specific area. Of course, you're then saying that runs the risk where it's like you're trying to improve in areas that you don't necessarily need to improve in. But I feel like that's more down to the individual's intelligence right they should just know that i'm actually really good in this if they're yeah. really driven with their self-development they can say yeah i know i do let's say communication really well but i don't do critical thinking really well and i need to work on that um but yeah i mean i think that's definitely a valuable experience in terms of development you know because it shows that that individual for that specific job just was not at the level yet they just they weren't a right fit which is actually that's yeah. why the the job the job example is good because it's like you're going to get the job if you're the right fit and you're not going to get it if you're not the right fit and mm. they will give you feedback to tell you how you can become the right fit you just need to follow the feedback so in that sense it's pretty simple well yeah i mean a simpler example of it would be just literally like driving test you go on the driving test you fail the driving test they'd be like oh you made this error twice you're not getting the license yeah and you go back and be like, okay, well, I need to do this better. I need to do that better. But like my point is like in both scenarios, you'd learn. So yes, you're absolutely right. It's not the end of the world. You'll go, you'll regroup, you go again with the right mindset and you'll go better. That's 100% the reality of it. If you ever attempt anything which does not require a lot of physical strength, yes, the physical strength can change over time, but like combat sport, like we said, but if you ever attempt, anything let's say a driving test or a job interview and you don't get it in the first run you'll 100% be better on your second go if if you're the type of person who's willing to uh, take the feedback and apply it to your life however once again with the driving thing my argument the whole time was yes you would improve both ways but don't you think you'll improve more by actually passing it than you would by failing it because by passing it firstly you're saving time you don't need to go through the whole thing again second you actually will get to do what you have to do so 
in the driving sense, for example, you pass the driving test. Okay, now you're actually a driver. Now you're sitting on your own driving around city. So who do you think would be a better driver? A William Cote who fails the first driving test in February and has the second driving test in August. In September, do you think William Cote 1 is a better driver than William Cote 2 who passed his driving test in February and has been driving since February till September. So when September comes, who do you think is a better driver? I think in the eyes of the law, the first one who failed his driving test is the safer driver and therefore arguably the better driver. Whereas you could argue that the one who passed first time and has been driving for months now is the one with more experience. But Mm -hmm. is he the safer driver in the eyes of the law? Maybe he had a luckier driving test than the first one. There are so many different possibilities and scenarios as to why the first individual did not pass and Mm. the second one did. Do you know what I mean? I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Yeah, it's just a different, maybe William Code 3 from a different universe (laughs) has a license already. (laughs) You never know. He maybe he had a license from the time he was born and he's just been constantly winning and he hasn't exactly. had to worry about developing. Exactly. Surely there has been a William Code in an alternative universe who does that. So if we're going to try and conclude this point on winning and losing, mm. I think what can we agree on? We can agree on that you you develop from both. Yeah. And but it also depends on the situation. And if we're talking about sport, for example, there might be certain sports where actually losing can be a developing moment. But in terms of your career, it's not beneficial. So we've we've said that about, you know, combat sports, for example. But in terms of like tennis, for example, actually losing could be a good thing because it gives you that experience or in football again it could be a good thing because it gives you that experience you know what not to do and what to do because it's not like combat sports where you lose you can take devastating hits and that just affects you going forward that sort of derails your career Mm. so i guess we've done this we've done these sort of things before and we've always reached the same conclusion which is like you know what? You can benefit from both. Yeah. Yeah, surely. Surely you could benefit from both. I still would think winning is... You would learn more from winning than you would from losing, though. I have a question for you, though. I'm listening. Tell me. Would you benefit more from watching Jack Reacher Season 2? Or would you be losing out if you did not watch it? I think... It's a beautiful transition by you. You'd 100% be losing out if you haven't watched it. Come on, guys. Jack Reacher Season 2. It gets the Coffee Hour stamp of approval. Come on. So, yeah, you finished it, I think, the same day after we recorded the last episode. And so I sort of, I gave a mini review. So now I just want to hear a few of your thoughts on the season finale and then, yeah, just the season in general. Okay, hear me out. I think Jack Reacher season two was amazing because you got to see more from Reacher. You got to see him collaborate more with others and you got to see new characters in there, which was good to see. And that's kind of the concept behind Jack Reacher himself going around as we discussed. However, I do think with this season, there were some questionable scenes, especially in the last episode where you're like, okay, yeah, we know he's a tank, but that just doesn't make sense. Are we talking about on a helicopter? Yes. Yeah, that I a hundred behind that. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with you. But at the same time, we know that it's it's realistic at points, and then other times it's not. And that's sort of like one of the appeals of the character because you know that this guy. You like to think that this guy can exist and you can be this guy, but he doesn't really exist. Like, yeah. without spoilers, I, I don't think this is a spoiler, but there is there's a scene in the finale where he's on a helicopter and he's showing superhuman strength that's just not really possible. 
Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. And maybe like a few scenes before that where this guy just takes on 20 people with weapons when he has his hand tied. Like, fair enough. But uh, it's it's... I get it. Like, I get it. That's what he's meant to be. He's meant to be the tank. One thing I'd like to say is that I'd like to differentiate season one and season two a little bit. I'd like to say season one was a bit more of him on the thinking side, on the brain side, rather than him as the muscle. Like, yes, he was still the muscle of the operation the whole time in comparison to other characters, but he was still thinking more. He was coming up with more strategies. He was solving complex issues. He was breaking people down mentally and physically, actually. Uh, Whereas this season, it was more like we're going in, we're going to wipe everyone out, we're coming back out. Uh, I'd like to, if there's a season three, which I'm sure there will be, I'd like... It's been greenlit. There we go. I'd like to see more about his thinking side i'd like to see more from the brain side of the operation rather than just the muscle side but yes what do you think about season two well i can completely agree with that i was just thinking what i said when we watched the first episode back in december mm-hmm. and i was like i love that it's different to season one because it's like in this urban area and he's got his old team back but i'm now i'm reflecting on both seasons which i love both of them they are different um and you mm-hmm. sort of you hit the nail on the head there where you said whereas season one was more about the thinking side season two is more about the physicality of him mm-hmm. i think both are great i'd recommend both i prefer season one yeah because it's not just because of that thinking side which is that sherlock holmes side which is really cool to watch um and again it's like how can he really figure this out in person like can someone actually figure things out like that probably not but you know you, you like to believe someone can um i like i like that season one was like a smaller town so we've mm. done we've done the big town now we've done the city and we've done a small town america and i think i prefer i prefer that season one because it it fits more with his personality Agreed, but you yeah. know we've got we've got 20 plus books so they can really go they can go back to like rural america small town america if they want to or they can go back to you know like urban new york if they want to as well so i really enjoyed it i'm looking forward to season three which i think well season one was 2022 season two was the end of 2023 so really we should be getting it next year um maybe even at the end of this year i don't know how quick they film these things so I'm really looking forward to it. And I have to say, it's just a, and the way it ended actually was perfect. Um, I agree. They kept, like I said in the previous episode, they kept what we know of the character, but they also, they developed him a bit more. Um, He has, you know, he does have a relationship again with another woman, um, Mm. which I like that. And you see more about his past, you know, we learn more about the guy and his past is exactly what you would expect from him. So yeah. Yeah. Absolutely recommend that. That's true. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of flashbacks in this season as well, which fair enough. Like you could, you kind of needed it for the backstories because a lot of these characters, as we mentioned, were from his past rather than him just meeting them. Uh, back to your point about season one and season two. Yes, I would rather, uh, I prefer season one as well, just because of that small town. I'd rather them go back to small town. Or maybe this is what, what they're doing. As you said, there's plenty of books. And one thing they're doing is they're not going in order. They're just jumping books to whichever well, one true. they find more appealing. Yeah. So maybe they are planning on doing, okay, let's do a season where it's the muscle of the operation, a season where he's the brain of the operation, a season where he's both, a season where it's in a busy town, a season where he's in a farm. Like yeah. maybe that's what they're trying to do. Maybe they're trying to show him in all different scenarios, whether it's a mainstream city, whether it's a small town, whether it's him. I don't know if there's any books about him traveling around the world rather than just being in America. I doubt there would be. Uh, but You never know, actually. There could be. Yeah, well, have you read any of the books? I remember you were I... looking at some. Yeah, I read the second one because I watched season one, which is based on book one. Um, mm-hmm. but I knew that season two was going to be on book. It's either nine or 11. So I thought 
okay, well, they're not going to film season two. They're not going to film book two now, so I might as well read it. Um, and that one is set in America, but it's really good. It is really mm. good. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree with you on that. Um, somewhat of a spoiler. Well, not really a spoiler. I really think they should have kept a certain character in season two rather than not keeping him in. Well, what character was that? Uh, the officer who bald guy. Oh, okay, from season one. Oh, no, no, no. no, no, no I know who you mean. Yeah, I know who you mean. Well, he was a really good character, and I think part of the reason why we like him is because they did what they did to him. And mm. we're like, oh, that's a great guy. I wish there was more of him. Um, but I agree, yeah. At, at the start, I was like, I'm not sure if I like this guy, but then you grow to love him, which is sort of how Reacher's relationship is with him as well. Yeah, exactly. Like, he's one of them ones. Same, same with Agent Fintley from first season. Uh, it was like that as well. But they have a good relationship as well. I would like that person to make a comeback as well, just like the female did in this season. Yep, and I want to give a shout out to to her. Um, I'm just I'm searching up her name now. Her name is Maria Sten. She plays Neely. I think she's brilliant as like his as his sidekick. And I think so. One of the reasons why they went from book one to book whatever I think yeah eleven I think it is is mm-hmm. because Neely next appears in book eleven. So they wanted to keep that character in, and I think she's really good. She has a she has a bigger role in this season than she did in season one, and of course all the other special investigators as well. They they're cool characters. Yeah, agreed. Neely was a great character both in season one and in season two, and it, the way season two ended, it kind of made you feel like okay, well, it seems like this person's gonna stick around a bit longer. So perhaps look out for any other book where she's in maybe they're gonna make season two based of that or season three based of that well she did sort of say that well this is not a spoiler she said pretty much to paraphrase that she wanted to see more of reacher so yeah that is sort of you know planting the seed where she's going to return again in season three which i have no problem with and something i someone who i would like to see return is the love interest from season one the one who played yes the uh, she was a really good character. Ros- Rosso? Rosco? Uh, yeah, Rosco. Yeah, that's the one. She was just, really good. I love that dynamic with Rosco and the cop. Finley. Think, Agent Finley. Finley. Yeah, Agent Finley and Rosco and Richo. It was just such a good dynamic. I agree. That trio is legendary. It's much I better could... than the dynamic in this season, I think. Oh, I agree. But that's a big part of the show, actually, because they've done it for two seasons now. It's like the dynamic between him and whoever his entourage is. And, okay, yeah, it was a better dynamic in season one, but it was also a different dynamic in season two, and it was pretty good on its own merits. Well, yeah, I mean, if they ever decide to make this show, like, five season long, let's say, uh, and you have, at the end of it, you have, like, five seasons, you'd rather go back and be like, oh, look, we have this style, we have that style, we have this style, rather than be like, oh, it's the same thing for five seasons. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So that somewhat is a good thing long term there is a nice cameo in season two as well that i'm not gonna yeah. spoil but yeah, it's yeah, nice yeah. To yeah 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 no season two was good as well highly recommended so does it fully get the stamp of approval from coffee hour i think it gets your stamp of approval that's how we do it so that before... the season two official stamp of approval there you yeah. go before we wrap this up apart from reacher what have you been watching lately so Two things. As promised, The Traitors, Season 2, Episode 1. Looks promising. I'm telling you. Finished Episode 1. Uh-huh. I'm on to Episode 2. I know who The Traitors are now. Uh, I, I don't know if they were the right pick, one of them. However, um, or two of them, actually. I don't think they were the right picks. However, it's it's looking good. So we're watching The Traitors. There's that. I'll get back to you on that when I finish yep. it. And recently I watched the new movie on Netflix with Kevin Hart called Light. Okay. Um, mediocre movie. If I were to give it a rating out of 10, I would say like six. Uh, it's one of them ones where it's mainly entertainment. Like it has some nice scenes visually. It looks appealing in some scenes. Yeah. Uh, it has these overkills when it comes to exaggeration and stuff like that. But the main story itself isn't anything too complicated or too specific or too too good to be honest it's just a very mediocre storyline meant for entertainment and it does deliver upon that well that's not the best review 
So I feel like I shouldn't check that one out. Yeah, I don't really recommend it. It's not a type of movie you'd like anyway, to be fair, would you? I No, probably not. I have two things to say, though. Firstly, mm-hmm. the Traitors finale was last week, and it was incredible. So you need to stick through the whole thing. It's the best thing I've watched so far this year. Okay. But it's a show that you might try and get answers from me, and I don't want to lead you in any direction. So really, the best thing to do is not talk about it at all. And you just tell me, you know, where you're up to and what you've seen. But for me to not really comment, because I don't want to give anything away. And on Kevin Hart, I was just thinking about how, well, I guess my question is, what happened to Kevin Hart? Because think about him being in these big studio films like Ride Along or Central Intelligence. And now it seems he only does like these small, these weird, but specific like Netflix films. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he's not in anything that's really in the cinema anymore. And I've just wondered, like, what what do you think of that? Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, to be fair, the last good film from him was, I'd say, Me Time. Me Time was good, although it wasn't, like, a great film. It was just somewhat entertaining. The one with him and Mark Wahlberg, I believe. The other one was Man from Toronto. That was a good film as well. Uh, and these were, as you said, these all of them were, like, Netflix shows and then Fatherhood as well you had. Um. I think it's just a case where he was offered a shit ton of money to work for Netflix and he's like, why not? Because yeah, obviously I am missing out on those comedy movies from him. Him and Dwayne Johnson, him and Ice Cube. Uh, it's just good dynamics. Like, they're amazing. He's a funny character and he's not really... You don't really see his potential in his latest films. Like, yeah. it's not what he's known for necessarily. But I think it's just a case of him getting offered a shit ton of money. Keep in mind, he's also making a lot of money from his comedies. Uh, and he's just like, why not? It's I, I, I believe it's easier. I believe there's less workload. So why not? Yeah, I understand the appeal there. I'm just thinking like to myself, I haven't really tuned into a Kevin Hart film in a while. And it is right, actually. He might have a Netflix deal. That's probably why. But it just, for me, it's like the quality of his, of the films that he's been a part of are just sort of fallen off a little bit um which is a shame those netflix deals they don't last forever though i'm sure he will he will come out the other side of it but it's sort of like you know adam sandler has a netflix deal for example and some of them are some of them are awful come on let's agree on that but some of them are actually like hidden gems some of them i really like so but yeah it's just it's a shame i haven't seen a kevin hart film in a while and i just see these ones pop up on netflix and i'm like "Eh, not for me yeah, I mean, to be fair, but the last good one from Kevin Hart I remember was, well, there's Jumanji, but you can't really say that's a Kevin Hart movie. He's a part of it, and it's like a famous franchise. But I think that's the last one I saw, the second Jumanji. Yeah, yeah, that's the last one I saw from Kevin Hart as well. That was a good one, but I don't really want to give all credits to Kevin Hart on that one. I think the last one that was mainly uh, Kevin Hart, and it was good, and it was a Netflix film, actually. I believe it was a Netflix film. It was Night School. That was a really good film from Kevin Hart. Oh, see, I just never watched it. Night School was just... good. And The Upside. The Upside was really good. The remake of that French film. That, was, that uh, was a really good film. But I've seen the French one a few times and it's so much better. I just, I can tell you that without... Have you without, seen the Kevin Hart one? I don't even need to because I know that with these with these Hollywood remakes of these foreign language films, they sort of butcher them because they, they Americanize it. And the French mm. one is just so funny. It's so good. I've not seen the French one. I would look it out, but I do recommend The Upside from Kevin Hart. It's it's just good. It's a good film. It's funny. It's deep in some cases, but it's it's a good film. I recommend. Well, we you you would know that going in because they wouldn't remake it if it was bad, right? So you know the story is good, but they sort of they always water it down when they do this, and it's like, yeah, I've seen the, I've seen the French one a few times, and I just don't I don't really need to return to it to watch mm. the american one do you know what i mean yeah i get you i get you i've seen the upside twice as well to be fair i've not seen the french one perhaps i'll watch that perhaps watch the french one next it's really good i would i would what what have you been watching well not i mean apart from finishing the traitors um i started a series called masters of air last friday which is the official end of this unofficial trilogy by tom hanks and steven spielberg which are these amazing dramas about the second world war Mm -hmm. and the first one was called band of brothers came out in 2001 and that's about world war ii on land second one was the pacific came out around 2009 2010 
and that was about Second World War at Sea. And Masters of Air, which came out last Friday, is about the Second World War in the sky. Um, and it's got us, Austin Butler in it, your favorite from Elvis. <laughs> and it is really good. It's like watching a Hollywood film on TV. Like the budget's okay. insane of this show. The acting's good. And it's just, it feels really authentic. Mm. I guess because they pumped so much money into it, the sets and whatnot, it it feels like you're transported back in that time and in terms of like the dialogue. And yeah, I mean, it's it's really incredible television. I've only seen episode one. Um, the first two are out at the moment and then they'll be doing one a week for the next, you know, seven or eight weeks. But so I've been watching that. It's really good. Finished The Traitors as well, which is incredible. And me and my partner are still working our way through Mindhunter, which is also incredible. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. Speaking of Austin Butler, one thing I'd like to mention is, did you know he recently hired a coach to help him get rid of that quote-unquote Elvis voice? I saw that, yeah. That's amazing. (laughs) But then, like, what voice is he learning now to get rid of it? Well, I think he's learning his own voice. Like, he's trying to, like, lessen to how he used to sound before, and he's trying to get that back. He should just keep the Elvis voice. I agree. It's amazing. It's not like you you hear it and you're like, oh, that's Elvis Presley talking. It's not like you think that. Yeah. Well, it's just a cool voice. It's a cool voice. Why does he want to change it? I don't know. I think he's just too lost in the character. It's like, I am now Elvis. Austin, we're telling you, don't change it. Don't change it, man. It's a good voice. Keep it. All right. Shall we wrap it up? Let's do this. I have been your host, William Cope. I'm your host, Arsha. And thank you for listening to Coffee Hour. We shall see you on the next one. Take care. Take care.